I want to run right into the meat of what I want to talk to you about today because I think it's so important and God's been leaning on my heart. If you're here and you're a guest, let me catch up to speed really, really quick in a serious conversation, which is what we do around here. We have a conversation for several weeks, and the name of this conversation is Jesus in Between. And the reason for the conversation is a lot of people are very familiar with the bookend Jesus, the, the holiday Jesus, the Christmas Jesus, the Easter Jesus. A lot of people can tell you the stories of Christmas Jesus. They know the details. Maybe they were in a Christmas pageant. A lot of people know the details of the Easter story as it pertains to Jesus. The problem is this, a lot of times what gets lost is a lot of in-between stories of Jesus. And those in-between stories of Jesus are what we are focusing on throughout this summer. And I've heard from many of you and I would share your sentiment. I have loved this series. I need to be honest with you, it's been challenging to me. And if it's been challenging to you, hang on, hang on. Because today, today, if you don't leave challenged, you're not listening. You don't hear me. Because today's passage challenged me unlike any other that we've looked at so far. We're in Mark chapter 8, and what you need to know about Mark, it'll get us set up. And this seems trivial, but it'll come back into play later. The book of Mark in your Bible was written by a guy named... That's terrible. The book of Mark was written by a guy named... Yeah, very good, right? Go figure. But here's the deal. Most scholars, we believe the source of the book of Mark was actually Peter. Like Peter is feeding the information, telling the stories. He's the one giving the details to Mark as Mark is writing. So I want you to remember that because Peter is the source, whereas Mark is the author. And when you get to Mark chapter 8, here's what is important for us to know today. It is a pivot point for the book of Mark. If you take a look at the 16 chapters of Mark, when you get to chapter 8, it is the hinge on which everything, everything in the book of Mark changes. Here's why. Because what we're going to look at today is a powerful passage that not only everything in the book of Mark hinges on this passage and changes, but everything in your life will and does as well. Everything in your life will and does as well. When you get to the book of Mark chapter eight, it starts with a bizarre story about Jesus. You ever read a bizarre story about Jesus? Well, like if you've never kind of read a story of Jesus and gone, what? You, you haven't read the stories of Jesus. Like, like there's some crazy stuff that happens, right? Like he's paying his taxes out of a fish's mouth, stuff like that, right? When you get to Mark 8, it starts with a story, everybody listen, a story that I haven't totally understood until this last week. Like I haven't, under, like why is that in there? Why is it that way? Because it's a little different. It's a head scratcher. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read it. Begin in verse 22. Here it goes. They came to Bethsaida, that's a fishing village, and some people brought a blind man and they begged Jesus to touch him. Now, everybody look here a second. Uh, Jesus was kind of known for this. He touched people other people didn't touch. He helped people other people didn't help. I mean, he hung out with people other people didn't associate with. And so these people know that and they're bringing this blind guy. He had been a cultural outcast. He couldn't help himself. And they want Jesus to what? To touch him. Why? They want a blessing from Jesus. They want help from Jesus. Jesus is a miracle worker. And this is where the story gets kind of bizarre. He took the blind man by the hand, touched him, and he led him outside the village. They go to a place outside the village. And then look at what it says. You almost have to look at it several times. When he had, everybody say that next word out loud, when he had 
spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. And anybody read that and say, say what? It, it doesn't say that he spit on the ground and made mud. He did that one time, right? But, but here's what it says. Don't miss this. Don't try to sanitize this. It's like they, he has this blind guy. Jesus, would you touch the blind guy? He leads him outside the village and then he spits in his eye. Can you imagine the guy's like, what in the world? We just want you, you just need to touch him, Jesus. Like you didn't need to spit in his eye, right? And then Jesus has the audacity to ask this question. He spits in his eye and then he puts his hands on him. And then Jesus asks the blind guy, do you see anything? Yeah, saliva is what I see, right? Verse 24, he looked up and he said, yeah. Remember the guy was blind. He said, I see people. Awesome, awesome. But they look like trees walking around. Guys, this is where it starts to get confusing to me. Like, it's, it's bad enough Jesus spit in his eye, right? That's kind of weird, right? Can we just say that? But then, then Jesus, miracle worker Jesus, son of God Jesus, Jesus, nothing is too hard for Jesus, spits in his eye. He like touches the blind guy. It's like, this is gonna be a miracle. This is gonna be awesome, right? And he looks at the blind guy. It's like, here it is, bam. He said, hey, can you see? I can see. Woo, Jesus did it again, but it's fuzzy, and it's almost like, oh no, if you're one of the disciples, like, oh, Jesus didn't realize how blind he really was. <laughs> like he didn't dial up enough power, <laughs> which leads to the story I think even gets more interesting because then Jesus, almost like Jesus recognizes, yeah, okay, I didn't kind of do enough there. So once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. So he touches the guy's eyes and then it says his eyes were opened and his sight was restored. The blind guy sees everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Interesting story. Like, like if I just end there, which you're like, I hope you're not gonna, but if I just end there, it's like, wow, that's kind of weird, right? Like, like it, it, it kind of calls into question. Some of you wear these awesome bracelets, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would spit in a guy's eye, right? So let's not do everything Jesus did, amen, right? It's like not a great evangelism tactic, right? Like, what's going on here? Blind guy, spit in the eye, and then he's not even completely restored, and Jesus has to touch him again. It's like, like, why in the world? Here's the question. I have always struggled with this. Why in the world did it take two touches of Jesus? Why did the healing happen in two stages? It's weird. Unless you realize what's going on in Mark chapter 8. Because whereas Jesus does heal a blind guy, here's the deal. There's something much bigger. It's not just about him healing a blind guy. Jesus is painting a picture for his disciples. Listen close. And he's painting a picture for you and I. What he's doing with this blind guy is he's giving us a powerful, potent, life-changing illustration. That if you'll see it today, if you'll see it, has the potential to change your life. You see, here's what Mark chapter eight is all about. Mark chapter eight is all about seeing, not just with this blind guy. The whole chapter, Jesus is addressing how people see, not just physically, but spiritually. And he recognizes that his disciples have a fuzzy view of him. Their view of Jesus is out of focus. Whole chapter is about seeing. You can look at this a few verses earlier in verse 17. Jesus talking to his disciples. He knew they were talking among themselves. He said, why are you talking about having no bread? He says, do you still not, what's that word? Still not what? See. 
or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to what? What's it say? See and ears but fail to hear and don't you remember? Whole passage is about seeing. He knew that his disciples' vision and view of him was out of focus. Like they saw Jesus, but they didn't see Jesus clearly. And Jesus knows this this morning, that what was true for his disciples is also true for many of us in this room. Like we see Jesus. We're going to church a long time, but what he knows, listen, he needs to lean in today. He's like, some of you see me, but you don't see me clearly. And why is that important? That is important because how I see Jesus will determine how I follow Jesus. How I see Jesus will determine how I follow Jesus. And what he's getting ready to teach us is not the easiest passage of scripture to digest. Because the story continues on after he heals this blind guy in the most unique of ways. Verse 27, he and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Everybody look here. You can also pronounce that Caesarea Philippi. Like, like some of you grew up in church and like you, you like that you can pronounce those hard names, like right? You, and you've learned to pronounce it Caesarea Philippi, right? But you can pronounce that Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it, it's a real town. It was a real place. And it was 25 miles north of where they were at. But here's what I want you to know. And here's why I am making such a big deal about how you pronounce it. It was the Las Vegas of this day. Like if you went to Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, uh, there would have been a buffet of gods they were worshiping. Like temples to gods everywhere. And the newest, most famous God just had a temple built to him. The temple was built under the orders of a guy named King Herod. And the temple was built to a person that they saw as a deity. He happened to be the emperor whose name was Caesar. And Herod wanted to gain some favor with Caesar, so he named the place after Caesar and his son, whose name was Philip, thus the name Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. And why do I go to all that trouble? Because it's interesting to me that Jesus took his disciples there outside of Caesarea Philippi, where they were worshiping Caesar, this God, this deity, and that's where he says, hey, I want you to see who I really am. That's where I'm gonna unveil, unwrap the truth of who I am. So he asked his disciples a question. Jesus was a rabbi and it was very common for students to ask the rabbis questions. Jesus was a different kind of rabbi. He was a master question asker. And he looks at his students, his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? Like, like what are they saying about me? And so they answer him. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, Old Testament prophet. Still others, one of the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, somebody like that. But like they give him some answers. And, and why is that important, church? Look here a second. Because it's important for all of us to know who people say Jesus is. Like we live in a culture, my guess is there's even different viewpoints in this room where people have all kinds of ideas about who Jesus is. It's important that you know the answer to that question. Who do people that you work with, who do people that you live around, who do people in our country, in our world, say Jesus is? Some think he was an incredible moral teacher, a good example to follow, a revolutionary. 
Uh, some people think he was the original Republican, right? I mean, literally, there's people that think that, right? Like, who do people say I am? Everybody listen. Verse 29, though. He all of a sudden, after he receives their answer, he says, but what about, what's the word? You. He's like, this is the heart of the passage. Who do you say I am? If you write in your Bibles, I'd recommend you do. I'd circle the word you. It's emphatic. He's like, what really matters to me is not who other people say, but who do you say? Like, like here's what Jesus is saying. Get the point. Jesus is saying it this way. He says, when you look at me, what do you see? Who do you say that I am? What do you see when you look at me? And the reason he's asking this is because what you see when you look at Jesus will determine how you follow Jesus. And so in character, Peter's the loudest and the first usually to speak up, right? So he answers, like, I got the right answer, right? He's one of those guys. He's like, you are the Messiah. You read Matthew 16. I mean, Jesus is like, good job, right? Like, like, same passage, Matthew 16, same story. It's not in here, but he says, you're the Messiah. Now stay with me. I'm gonna take you down in the deep end. We'll pop back out. The word he uses there, the Greek word is Christos. You are the Christos. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. You can forget that. Here's why that's important because we read that in our Bible and we're like, oh, that must be a church word. That must be a Bible word. That must be just a Jesus word. And it's not. Like the nation of Israel, they called their kings the anointed ones, the Christos. And they knew, they knew because now the Romans are in charge. They knew what it was like to be in captivity. They knew there was a Christos that was gonna come, a Messiah, the king to end all kings. He's gonna rescue us. He's gonna set up rule. We're waiting for that day. And so Peter looks at Jesus, don't miss this. He's like, you're that dude. You're the Christos. You're the one who's gonna come. You're gonna rescue us. You're the one who's gonna turn the tables on the Roman Empire. And then Jesus says something interesting. Do you see it in there? He says, Yep, now don't tell anyone. Everybody look here a second. That's, is that weird to anybody? I thought we were supposed to tell everybody who Jesus is. Like, why is Jesus telling them, listen, don't tell anyone. L- listen, it makes sense if you understand the story. Where are they? They're right outside of Caesarea Philippi. Who is the recognized king in their culture? It is who? Caesar. To go proclaim out loud, Jesus is the Christos, is to declare war on Rome. And Jesus knew if they go and they begin to shout this, they were either gonna declare a revolution or he had to be prepared to stand execution. There was only two choices. And he knew that his time had not yet come. And then it becomes really apparent, everybody listen, that as Peter is talking with Jesus, that Peter sees Jesus and he actually gets the answer right. I see you, you're the Messiah. But here's what becomes apparent, that Peter sees Jesus, but he does not see Jesus clearly. That Jesus, the Jesus that he sees is out of focus. 
And because Jesus is out of focus, the way Peter is following Jesus, listen close, is dangerous. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That's the Jewish religious leaders. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Guys, listen to me because we know this because we know the story of Easter. But for the disciples in the book of Mark, this is the first time Jesus talks about his death. This is the first time they're hearing this. The very first time they're hearing it is right here. And Jesus looks at Peter. He says, you're the Christos. Let's go. And he says, the son of man has to die at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. And it so unsettles Peter that look at what Peter does. Peter took him, that's Jesus, aside. And he began to, say that next word out loud, began to rebuke him. Jesus pulls Peter aside from the rest and he begins to scold him. Different sermon, but can we make a point worth writing down? It is never a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? Never. (laughs) And Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh, like quit this crazy talk. Like, like, that's not right, Jesus. I mean, you got this kind of messed up. That's not how this should roll. Why is Peter rebuking Jesus? I'll give you three suggestions. They're worth writing down. There is no slide for it. One is, it's evident to me that Peter does not see Jesus clearly yet. He sees Jesus through a lens, and the lens is fuzzy. He has a different idea of what Jesus should be doing, and he has a different idea of how Jesus should be doing it. He says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, and Peter has this idea about how Jesus should be the Messiah, and suffering and dying isn't a part of that plan. He's like, come on, Jesus, let's go. Let's take it over and think about it. Because if we take this over and you become the Christos and you become the king, if you're Peter, just just be real for a minute. Like, I was one of the first ones to follow you, but I got a cabinet position in there somewhere, right? Not only that, can we say this, that Peter is rebuking Jesus because not only did he not have a clear view of Jesus, but he selectively read the Bible. Peter knew the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures better than you and I, I can tell you that. But yet it's evident to me that the passages he liked to lean into, he had his favorite passages. They were the Old Testament passages about Messiah coming to rescue. And he totally skipped over the Old Testament passages that talked about this suffering servant. And then it becomes evident to me, listen, listen, that not only he didn't see him clearly, he selectively read the Bible. Now listen, this is gonna come back to land on us, so you gotta hear what I'm gonna say. But Peter's worldview is what influenced the way he looked at Jesus. From the time he was knee-high to a grasshopper, he was told about this Messiah who would come and reign and rule, and somehow here's what happened. Listen, we're gonna talk about this in a minute. His worldview, his worldview is what instructed him about what Jesus should do instead of Jesus instructing his worldview. 
And so he rebukes Jesus and and Peter's view of Jesus is so far off. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 33, you can't make this stuff up. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he then rebuked Peter. And he says this to Peter, get behind me. Everybody say the next word out loud. It's like, come again. Can we just say this, different sermon? It's probably never good if Jesus is calling you Satan. Can I get an amen on that? Like, this is a bad day. And then he says to him, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He says this, he says this. Now listen, this is gonna land tough. He says, Peter, you, your view of me is so far off because of your response and what you said to me. It is so far off, as everybody listening, it's so far off that it is so far off and fuzzy that it is satanic. Hello. <laughs> you see, I think what Jesus is, is saying is something that we saw Jesus say one other time. And the one other time we heard Jesus use verbiage like this is when Satan was testing Jesus. And he said, hey, why don't you go for this big kingdom and let's just avoid the cross. And Jesus looked at Satan and said, get away from me, Satan. And so now Peter's like, this is crazy. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Everybody look here a second. Let's make sense of this because we've got to drive something home. Do you remember I told you that Mark wrote the book, but who was the source? Which makes this interesting. Can you imagine Peter sitting there with Mark says, I want you to write this one story down. There was this day and spit in the eye and didn't see. And it was like, and Mark being like, say what? He's writing. And then Peter saying, yeah. And then Jesus began to ask us questions. And I answered the question. And I was like, you know, I, I said, you're the Messiah. And I began to, to rebuke Jesus when he told us that he was going to have to suffer. And, and Mark looking at Peter like, you want me to put that in here? Or do you want me to leave that out, you know? And, and Peter's like, no, you need, to, you need to include that. Well, what happened after that? Well, 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 Jesus looked at me and he said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, can you guys imagine being Mark? <laughs> it's like, dude, like, really? You, you want that in there? And it's like Peter looking at Mark saying, yeah, it was a terrible day for me, but I want you to include it because I know that in 2019, there's gonna be a group of people in Norton, Ohio that need to hear this because if I, after following Jesus for two years, Peter followed Jesus in the flesh for two years, if I could have an off-focused, fuzzy view of Jesus, I guarantee you they can. No matter how long they've been going to church, no matter how long, if they grew up in a Christian home, that their view of Jesus can be skewed. Now here's what I know and here's what Peter knew. We all have a vision of Jesus and who he is. And honestly, our view of Jesus sometimes can be a bit fuzzy. And our view, and this is why you need to lean in, our view of Jesus can be so fuzzy, so off focus that it can be downright satanic. And what happens when our view of Jesus is fuzzy and off focus, listen, 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 we begin to rebuke Jesus with our lives. You say, why in the world would we rebuke Jesus? For the very same reasons 
that Peter did. You see, we're not a whole lot different than Peter. Let these guys be real. But with our lives, we begin to rebuke Jesus because we, like Peter, are you with me? We, like Peter, we enjoy selectively reading the Bible. Even when it comes to the stories of Jesus, like we have our favorites. I mean, I hear this all the time. I love it, Pastor Dan. Like, good shepherd Jesus, awesome. Light of the world Jesus, yes. Feed the 5,000 Jesus, love it. Little children in Jesus, go for it. But you know, Pastor Dan, not really into when Jesus talks about money. Because that feels tough. And, and, and you know, Pastor Dan, that whole section when he talks about lust and to pluck the right eye and like, woo, <laughs> like that one's hard. And, 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 and you know, Pastor Dan, like Jesus, come rest if you're weary, love that. But the whole thing about marriage that Jesus talks about, like I'm not sure he's kind of in, in line with where we're at today. And, and, and certainly, and certainly, Dan, if you could kind of avoid the, if you could avoid the love your enemies <laughs> and forgive those who persecute you. See, the truth of the matter is we're not that unlike Peter. Beyond that, beyond that, if we're honest, most of us in the room, if not all of us, grew up in America where we have an American worldview. And if we're honest, and stay with me, I'll probably get an email on this, our American worldview taints the way we look at Jesus. Because what happens is we grow up with this worldview and we just assume and we allow our American worldview to somehow instruct what Jesus should look like, what Jesus should do, how Jesus should come through, instead of allowing Jesus to instruct our worldview. And so somehow we assume, well, Jesus, certainly he was the original Uncle Sam, right? I mean, he must be the original American, right? I mean, certainly Jesus is the king of consumerism and what Jesus wants for me is the life that somehow is gonna bless me so that I can achieve the American dream because that's Jesus, right? I mean, certainly it's blessing in the bottle, Jesus. Certainly it's self-help, Jesus. What happens is this, is my view of Jesus starts to get fuzzy and here's how I know my view of Jesus gets fuzzy. Stay with me, this is gonna land. This is how I know that my view of Jesus gets fuzzy because when I see Jesus, I don't necessarily see a tree like the blind guy, but I know my vision of Jesus is fuzzy because when I look at Jesus, I don't see a tree, I see me. And in my imagination, I've created this Jesus that looks like me, thinks like me, votes like me. He likes the people I like, supports the people I support, and he doesn't like the people I don't like, and he doesn't support the people I don't support. And all of a sudden, I think it's the great crisis in 21st century American church world. Stay with me. I know that is a big statement. All of a sudden, we create a Jesus of our own imagination instead of the Jesus of the Gospels. And why that's important is the Jesus I see is the Jesus that I follow. And all of that, and I can imagine, look here a second, because I, I, I feel what probably you feel. I feel I feel the room right now. 
And I can only imagine Jesus' disciples might have felt the same. Because they're like, wow, we're getting real real quick. Like, like, like this is not self-help Jesus talk. Because it led Jesus to say this, and if ever you've leaned into anything I've said, I want you to lean in now. Verse 34. So Jesus decided to call the crowd. He's like, I want everybody to hear this. Along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, you want to be my follower, and all are invited, but if you want to be my follower, my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Like, like, like if you're Peter and you're like, I thought Christos, take over. And you're looking at Jesus and he's like, if you want to follow me, Pete, I want you to deny yourself. Huh? I thought we were going to like take over and get our way and express our rights and you're going to lead the way. He's like, I want you to deny yourself. Well, then what? Grab my sword? Nope. I want you to take up your cross. Say what? I want you to follow me. I mean, you got to be thinking, Pete's looking at Jesus like, well, that's a real momentum killer. Like, we were just getting traction, Jesus. Like, like what are you talking about? Like, there's several things that are interesting here. Jesus says, whoever, and that's key. He was a rabbi, and rabbis would have selected a small, hand-picked group of students to follow them. Jesus said, no, 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 my students, is, that's open to anybody. All are invited, everybody in this room invited to embrace a gospel that costs you nothing. Like it's by grace through faith, Jesus paid the price so that you could have a relationship with God, forgiveness of your sins. And so Jesus like, whoever can embrace this gospel that costs you nothing, listen, 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 but will demand from you everything. And he said, you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Can we just say this and then we got to make some application. We have to do it. This whole phraseology, take up your cross, it, it, we've popularized it. You notice that? Like it's, it's, we, we've done it so much, like some of us, that's the only way we know to use it because it's become sarcastic. Oh, it's my cross to bear. You know, we kind of do it that way. It's like, like we talk about different things in our life. I live in Northeast Ohio. It's my cross to bear, right? The weather. I'm a Browns fan. Oh, it's my cross to bear, right? right? I'm short. Oh, it's my cross to bear. I'm bald. That's oh, my, listen, when the disciples heard this, that would have been so far from the imagery in their mind. That had been so far from the imagery they would have thought about. When, when Jesus uses this terminology, they would have thought Roman instrument of execution. That's what they would have thought. Like, like we have sanitized the symbol even. We've made it a piece of jewelry, a cross in my pocket, a decoration in our home, right? And, and yet the truth of the matter is, that right here in Caesarea Philippi, not long before Jesus and his disciples are having this conversation, a hundred men crucified on a Roman cross. Like they would have known exactly what that looked like, smelled like, sounded like. And this is what Jesus is saying. Listen, listen, I know it's hard. He's saying this, unless, unless you die Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You cannot be my disciple. 
and I feel it in the room because some of you are like, well, thanks, Dan, I invited my friend today, you know? And, and if you're here and you're a guest, I'm glad you're here. Like, like, let me just say, like, we are not apologetic about saying, what does the Bible teach? Like, we will not skirt away from it. And this is hard. Like, if it's your first time hearing it, like, this is hard. Like, like Mark gets to chapter 8 before he, he talks about this. And yet, I promise you this, we will not skirt away from what Scripture teaches. But when you think about what's going on here, this is why it's got to make sense to us. Peter saw Jesus, but he didn't see him clearly. And because he didn't see him clearly, he was not prepared to follow him completely. Think about this. It will land in a minute. Peter saw Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he wanted Jesus to follow him, to follow his plan, to follow his paradigm, to somehow accomplish his ambitions. Like, Jesus, this is the way we ought to do it. To which Jesus said, no, get behind me. And aren't we sometimes guilty of the very same thing that we see Jesus fuzzy. We see Jesus as as somehow a self-help guru that's going to accomplish my plans, that's going to kind of pull off my desires. He is the ultimate life coach, the ultimate financial coach to somehow accomplish what it is that I want the way that I wanted. He, he, he's, he's the political revolutionary that obviously shares the same platform I have. I mean, he's the cultural radical that's obviously on the same side of the agendas that I am. And Jesus' question to you in 2019 is this, and I don't want you to miss it. When you look at me, what do you see? Do you see me clearly? And the reason that's so important, Norton Campus 2019 is this, is because simply I will not follow Jesus completely until I begin to see him clearly. And when I look at Jesus, I got to begin to allow him to turn the dial because when you look at Jesus... When you follow Jesus, you follow a man who surrendered his will to the will of his father, even though it wasn't popular and it wasn't easy. When you follow Jesus, you follow somebody who sacrificed his life in order to bring forgiveness to you and to me, absorbing the hurt and paying the penalty. When you follow Jesus, you follow somebody who denied himself in order that you could have a relationship with God. When you follow Jesus, you follow somebody who showed us and taught us that the hope of the world is not in gaining more, but it's in giving your life away. So what Jesus says to us this morning, he simply says this, if you wanna be my disciple... You need to take up your cross and follow me. And everybody lean in. You're saying, Dan, what are you saying? Like, we have gotten, be ready to die for Jesus? That might be a good question. Like, like can we just say that? Like, there's people all across the world that, that are today. You need to know that. 345, around 345 a month. Like, like it, that almost just like, oh, that's a statistic. 345 people that die for their faith a month. One in nine Christians across the world persecuted for their faith. So it's a fair question, right? 
But, but, but the chances of you dying a martyr's death for the sake of the gospel is very, very low. Can we just say that? And so apparently Jesus must mean something beyond that. There has to be something more. Otherwise, this passage loses its power. And many American Christians have taken the power away from this passage because like, well, I'm not dying for my faith. Not in one of those countries. And the power for the passage, I think, begins to pop when you see Luke's account of it. And Luke's account of it, this is a word that he adds. He said to them all, look at this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, what? What's it say? Daily, every day, and follow me. Peter, the guy he's talking to, he was martyred, but that was a one-day, one-time event. On one day, he was martyred. Jesus said, no, no, what I'm talking about here, yeah, that's great, be ready and willing to do that. I'm saying every day. Every day, I want you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. What in the world is Jesus saying? He's saying that when you see me clearly, you ready, church? I'm gonna give you three or four things and we're done. He says, when you see me clearly, here's what it means. It means this, that I will surrender my will to his will, even when it isn't easy and even when it isn't popular. We follow a leader who knelt in a garden in an excruciating moment and he said, if there is another way, but Father, not my will, but what? Yours be done. You see, what it means for me to surrender and deny myself is to to follow Jesus by saying yes to him, no to me. Even when it's not popular, even when it's not easy. When I say yes to Jesus, I'm gonna clear something up. When I say yes to him as my savior, I'm receiving something I could never work for. I'm receiving by grace salvation. And here's what I'm saying, yes, I want you to be my savior. Yes, I'm placing my faith in you. And me saying yes to you as my savior, everybody lean in because there's a lot of confusion on this. I am saying, I want to say yes to you every day for the rest of my life. Even if that means saying no to me and my will, my desires and what I prefer. Can we be honest that some of us have a fuzzy view of Jesus? And so what we really want is a Jesus that says yes to us, that's okay with us, that does it our way. When I say yes to Jesus, when I surrender my will to his, that means I'm surrendering even if it isn't culturally popular, even if it isn't personally easy. When I don't see Jesus clearly, I assume that he'll do what I'm doing. You ready? Ready? I assume Jesus probably just blesses my sexual decisions. I wish you could have seen your heads. Some of you were like this and it was like, yeah, let's go there. Because I just assume that, you know, Jesus would be okay with that. I have people come in also, I'll talk about that all the time. I had, a, I had a guy recently, and you know, he knows I'm a pastor, and uh, he is participating in things sexually that are way outside of God's plan. Can we just say it that way? 
be ambiguous. And he came to me, and this happens once in a while when you're a pastor. And by the way, I can see it in your faces when it's going to happen. I can see when he came to me that he wanted to fight, verbally fight. I can see it. You know, you can see it a mile away. After 26 years, you can see it. And so he came up to me, and I knew about his story. And he kind of came up to me, and he kind of doing this thing. And he told me about what I already knew, his decision sexually. And he said, I want to know what the church thinks about that. He kind of did that. You like that? He did that. And I'm like... Well, I'm not, I'm not totally sure, so here's what I do. I ask a question back. I said, help me understand, what are you asking? Are you asking, can you come to Grace Church? Because if that's what you're asking, all day long, every day, come. I tell people all the time, you, you, you come here and disagree with what I'm saying. I looked at the guy and said this, everybody lean in. I said, but I personally think, because he's like, I won't fight. I said, if you're looking for a church that will agree with you in your sexual decisions, I can find you 15. They're all over the place. I said, I think you're asking the wrong question. I said, I think what you need to be asking is, what does Jesus think about your sexual decisions? And are you willing, you ready? Are you willing, everybody lean in, to follow Jesus even if he disagrees with what you think right now? You see, when my view of Jesus is fuzzy, I think he's just going to bless my sexual decisions. I, I just figure he's okay with the way I do my finances. I fit, he's, he just fits into my political platform. He approves the cultural trends of today. He must, right? That's the way Jesus is. And Jesus says, what do you see when you see me? Do I look like a tree walking around or do you see me for who I really am? Because when you do, you'll surrender your will. To my will. You know why? Not because I'm like, because that's the way I rule. Because I surrendered my will to the Father so that you could have what you could never achieve. Why wouldn't you surrender your will tonight? See how that works? Not only that, when I see Jesus clearly, I got to race through this. I will begin to sacrificially love others by extending forgiveness to them. Every time I forgive somebody else, it is an opportunity to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow the one who took up his cross to forgive me. When I refuse to forgive someone else, I am refusing to deny myself, I'm refusing to take up my cross and follow the one who took up his cross so that I could be forgiven. Think about it this way. You know, when they, when they killed Jesus, everybody listen, this will make it pop for you. It did for me. When they killed Jesus... In his trial, guess what they did? Guess what they did? They spit in his face. And then Jesus died to forgive all of those who did what? Spit in his face. It made this passage pop for me because I began to think to myself this. It's not until somebody figuratively spits in your face. Remember Jesus and the blind guy? It's not until somebody figuratively does that that I begin to see Jesus clearly. Because then I know, what does it mean for me to follow the great forgiver? I know this isn't easy. But many of us want a Jesus who will excuse my unwillingness to forgive. My case is special. My case is different. I want a Jesus to help me explain my bitterness that I'm hanging on to. 
every opportunity I have in my friendships, in this church, in my group, in my marriage to forgive is an opportunity for me to take up my cross and the shadow of that cross encroaches on every relationship I have. And it reminds me that I'm following a guy who went to the cross so that I could be forgiven by God. And he said, if you want to follow me, I'm the one who did that for you. You have to take up your cross. You have to follow me. Leads to the last thing, and then I'm going to skip, say this to the back, some things, but the last thing is this. I Following Jesus and seeing him clearly means this. I'm going to begin to give my life away for the benefit of others. I follow a leader who gave his life away for the benefit of others. He deserved to be served, and yet he came to serve. In a few chapters, you can check me on this. Mark chapter 10, guess what? His disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Do you remember that? Like we've talked about that in here. And that's the story where Jesus looks at them. They're arguing like, I want to be. And, I, and he says, listen, the son of man, me, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life away as a ransom for many. Jesus humbled himself and gave his life away. Listen, because I want something to pop for some of you who would say you're a Christian this morning. Gave his life away and only when he gave his life away could he experience the power of the resurrection. Did you ever think about that? He could only experience the power of the resurrection by dying. (laughs) Which is why he says this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? When I read that, I think to myself this. There, I, I talk to so many people who would call themselves Christians and they're like, something's not popping. I don't experience any power. And all I would say is this. I will never experience the power and the hope of resurrection life until I die to myself. You see, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me. I'm going to ask Aiden and Garrett to make their way out. And can I ask you a couple of questions? You can kind of close your Bibles up. Can I ask you a couple of questions this morning? We can kind of dim the lights and get ready to worship. I'd love nobody leaving. The kids are going to be fine. But can I, can I just talk with you for a second? I've been thinking all week about this sermon. I know it... it Like, there's not a lot of humor and funniness in what Jesus is teaching today, right? (laughs) But but there's an awful, awful lot of serious and profound life-changing things in what Jesus is saying. Can can I ask you this? Just look here a second. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? For some of you, you might have come in here and you're blind. You're blind. And you're like, I didn't know. Jesus died for me to forgive me because he loves me and that's how I am forgiven and have a relationship with God. And and, and this morning, you can see. He's like, you can come and experience salvation. You can experience seeing grace from Christ. All are invited. Simply say yes to Jesus as your Savior. The only one who can save you. 
Can I talk to a lot of you in the room who say, I'm a Christian? Can I talk to you for a second? Because you're like, I see. I, I already see. And I'm following Jesus. Can I ask you this? What do you see when you think about Jesus? Do you see a Jesus that fits into your plans, accomplishes your vision? Or do you see a Jesus that literally surrendered his will to the Father, sacrificially gave his life by giving his life away so that you could experience freedom, forgiveness, and a forever home? Because that Jesus this morning says, when you see me clearly, you will take up your cross and follow me. You'll stop saying yes to you and you'll start saying yes to me because you realize what I did for you. You'll stop holding on to that grudge and explaining away that bitterness and you'll take up your cross because that's where freedom begins and you'll follow the one who absorbed the hurt so that we could experience that kind of forgiveness. And you'll stop going through the motions of simply being a Christian and you'll start following a Christ who gave his life away there's the power of following him. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? Because Father, I pray this morning as we leave this place, it's a hard teaching, but it's one we need to hear. And I'm so grateful that the Jesus that calls us to follow him is the Jesus that loves us so much that he surrendered, that he denied himself and gave his life on that cross so we could have freedom and forgiveness. So I pray all across this room, all across this room as we sing this last song, all across this room, I pray that you won't let this simply be a sermon, but I pray that you'll let it be a conversation from Jesus to you. And his question is simply this, this morning, who do you say that I am? only when you begin to see him clearly will you be ready to follow him completely.